3: So, yes, there are cases where countries take action in advance of a crisis, but the fact remains that with countries as with people, nothing attracts attention like something massively going wrong.
2: That was Jared Diamond discussing his novel approach to exploring historical crises.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, where the UK's best-selling history magazine available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's guest is the American historian and geographer, Jared Diamond, who's perhaps best known for his 1997 book, Guns, Germs and Steel. He's just published a new book, Upheaval, which uses ideas from psychology to explore how a selection of countries have coped with historical crises. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, Met up with him recently in London to find out more.
4: Why did you decide to take this approach to telling the story of these global events?
3: This approach, the reason is simple. It was because of of being married to a clinical psychologist who had a specialty in crisis therapy when marie and i were first married in our first year marie was doing a year of training in crisis therapy which is a very distinctive form of crisis therapy it's not the usual meet you with your therapist once or twice a week for several years and explore early childhood instead there's a crisis there's a risk that the person will take their life or that they'll flounder and and the observation is that when one is thrown into a personal crisis, you can't remain in a state of limbo forever. Either you find some new way of dealing with things in a relatively quick time, or you resort to your old way. So there's this six-week, roughly six-week window. And each week, Marie and her fellow therapists would get together to talk about what all the clients in the office were doing and who was making progress and who was at risk. And Marie would then tell me anonymously about these outcome measures, this was 1981, and it dawned on me that similar outcome measures or things for which they serve as metaphors um, apply, might apply also to national crises. That was 1981. I didn't start to write the book until 31 years later because other books intervened, but the idea was percolating for a long time. Mm. And finally, in 2012, I was ready to start on it. Um, and how difficult
4: was it choosing um, which nations and which crises to explore? Because it sometimes seems like there's crises just everywhere.
3: Mm. Um, it, was, it was not so difficult because the list got narrowed down by my, my conclusion that I would write only about countries in which I had lived that I knew for a long time and where I spoke the language. And there was only one, Japan, I don't speak the language, but I've got Japanese relatives. Mm-hmm. All the other countries, I speak or spoke the language. And that meant that there they they were, were only two countries that could have been, on, well, three countries that could have been on the list that weren't. Britain, initially, I intended to have a chapter on Britain, but the changes in Britain are too complicated and fast moving now. South Africa, I set out to do a chapter on South Africa, but I couldn't get enough material. And although I've been there frequently since the 1980s, I felt that I did not have the understanding, personal understanding of South Africa that I do with the other countries. I might have done it for Italy, but Italy I go back only to 1998. And so what I was left with was all the other countries where I speak the language and where I have a long history of of. The shortest one is Indonesia, where I've been only 40 years. But but the UK is now 69 years since my first visit. So I've had lots of time to see what changed. And in addition, I have friends my own age who can tell me about a track record for 70 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your personal connection
4: to these countries is something I really like about the book. Um, And we'll talk about some of the countries you did choose in a minute. For people who might not know, I suppose, what are some of the factors that you've applied from personal trauma to the way that we can understand how countries deal with national trauma?
3: Some of them appear right at the beginning, and anyone who has gone through a personal crisis, which means everyone, um, will, will be familiar, if they're even slightly honest, with what makes it more or less likely that you get through a personal crisis. The first step, obviously, is to acknowledge that you're in a crisis. If you deny that you're in a crisis, you're gonna get nowhere towards resolving it. And a second step also, obviously, is to acknowledge that that you can do something, that you have some responsibility. If you get immersed, overwhelmed with self-pity, and if you see yourself as a victim, and you blame others, and you refuse to admit there's anything you can do about it, again, you get nowhere towards taking action yourself. And then, still another, the first step that that therapists notice is what's called drawing the fence. This won't be intuitively obvious, but it, it's still the case that in a big personal crisis like a relationship breakup, often we have the sense that everything has gone wrong in my life. We feel overwhelmed. But as long as you're overwhelmed and think that everything is wrong with you, you can't make any progress in dealing with what requires dealing with And So a first step is is building a fence within the fence are the problems that need changing and then outside the fence is the rest of you which is okay and and shouldn't be changed those then are first steps other first steps that most people are familiar with are the value of getting help emotional or even material help from friends and the value of using other people being able to use other people as models um, for example, when my first marriage broke up, I immediately, in the next couple of days, I talked to five friends whose marriages had broken up and wanted to put, put a marriage back together. And they served as models for how to, how to repair or what to do um, the, the next time around. So those are the obvious first five steps. Other obvious steps are honest self-appraisal, if you're not honest about what's gone wrong, you're going to get nowhere. Another step is previous experience of dealing with a crisis. And the lack of previous experience is why the, the crises of teenagers and young adults are so overwhelming because a teenager or young adult doesn't have the experience of having gotten through a crisis, whereas my first acute crisis a professional crisis of 21 when my first marriage then broke up 20 years later yes it was different but i at least had the experience of having gone through a severe crisis and realized that i got through it since i got through that i was probably going to get through this so those are some of the the parallels the features affecting whether one gets through a personal crisis and then all of them map onto national crises. Nations get help or they don't get help. Nations use other countries as models or they don't. Nations are honest um, about their responsibility for change or like the United States now, they're not honest about that. We'll talk about that in a minute
4: because that's really interesting. Um, I'd like to start in terms of the countries you cover by talking about Indonesia, Mm. because Indonesia is, I think, a nation that people are perhaps less familiar with in terms of its identity and its history. Mm. But it is a nation that is quite new in the sense of it becoming independent, isn't it? How much did that impact on how it dealt with the crisis you cover?
3: It did, because in Indonesia, as you say, is the the youngest country in my sample. Indonesia became independent in 1949, after three centuries as a Dutch colony. It meant that Indonesia, when its crisis uh, attempted coup and then a counter coup, broke out in 1965. Indonesia had a track record of only 16 years of independence, which means not many crises to get through. Whereas, say, gosh, what would be an example? Japan. Japan had several thousands of years of experience of crises that it got through. When Indonesia had its coup, counter-coup and genocide in 1965, the only severe crisis that Indonesia had overcome was the independence struggle against the the Dutch, which meant that Indonesians did not have a long track record of confidence that they could confront and get through difficult problems. But the Indonesian government has now intentionally emphasized the independence struggle to build up explicitly national confidence. We got through that, that was really hard so we can get through anything there
4: something i liked is that you say about the difference that you feel when you go to indonesia now compared to when you went in the past how much stronger its national identity is now over quite a short space of time
3: yeah.
4: do you think that's a result of it going through that crisis
3: um, it's a result of a number of things certainly it's the result of of the genocide crisis of 1965, but that's not talked about much. And and it's also a result of Indonesian government policy about emphasizing we're all Indonesians. And it's a result of the spread of the national language. And it's a result of a greater degree of satisfaction in Indonesia than there was in When I began, they were 1979, when there were still independence movements. Yes, there are a couple of independence movements now, but they're they're much weaker because more Indonesians are are satisfied, and the Indonesian language is thoroughly established now throughout Indonesia. Hmm.
4: I find it interesting that Indonesia is a country with quite a short history, yet it's also a country where people aren't encouraged to talk about that history. That seems really interesting, that juxtaposition.
3: That's highly selective. Indonesians they are encouraged to talk about the war of independence against the Dutch. What they must not talk about is the 1965 genocide. And the reason is that the the genocide was committed or instigated by the army, and the army is still there. Indonesia is no longer a military dictatorship, but the army is powerful. It's only within recent years that Indonesians have started to talk about the genocide, but cautiously. Mm-hmm. Uh, How useful is it for us to compare Indonesia's experience with what happened in Chile? I find it useful most immediately because of the contrast. So here were two countries where one side set out to exterminate the other side. In Indonesia, the military pretty well succeeded in exterminating the communists. In Chile, the military succeeded either in exterminating or driving into exile the socialists. The difference was that at the end of the military regime, after 17 years in Chile, and after 35 years in Indonesia, there was some reconciliation in Chile. There was discussion. There was acknowledgement on the part of the new government, whereas in Indonesia, there was not discussion, there was not acknowledgement on the part of the government, partly because in in Indonesia, the army remained there, and in Chile, the army was discredited and retreated. Also, the first democratic president of Chile after the end of military dictatorship. Iowen, in his first speech as president, the socialists were expecting him, hoping he would say that he was going to punish the torturers. And in fact, he used the phrase, a Chile for all Chileans, which was a euphemism for a Chile in which the torturers could live together with the tortured or the relatives of the, the tortured. Reasons for that were that in the, in the, the final plebiscite that that ended the military dictatorship. Although it was a free plebiscite, 45% of Chileans still voted for Pinochet, and the army was there in background. So Iowan recognized that such a large fraction of Chileans still sympathized with the, and and to this day, when I was interviewing Chilean friends, I I had two cases of interviewing husband and wife couples where the couples asked me, would I please interview them in separate rooms because they said, we have different views about the matter. And in both cases, one member of the couple, I think the the woman said, in effect, um, yes, Pinochet did horrible things, but he was good for the economy. And the husband said, yes, Pinochet was good for the economy, but he did horrible things. That's so interesting. So, so the, the husband and wife had opposite views. Yeah. Um, if we're going to map some of the uh, the factors
4: that you talked about at the start on what happened in Chile, is it a case that that's an instance of not acknowledging the trauma, if you like?
3: I would say instead that the Chile is a case of partially acknowledging the trauma. It's not an... Ex- Germany is the extreme case, of acknowledging what they did. Um, Japan is the opposite extreme of not acknowledging. Indonesia is close to that extreme. In Chile, the government, um, the current government has acknowledged and has had commissions. The, The people sent to prison did not include any members of the junta. Pinochet himself was prosecuted, but developed Dementia before the prosecution could be followed through the head of the secret service Was sentenced to 529 years in prison and died in prison. The other members of the junta were not put on on trial the Chilean government Realized that it had to be cautious because the army was still there and what were they going to do? Yeah, and you mentioned Japan there Um,
4: Which in the book you you compare in some ways to what happened in Finland. Is that right?
3: The comparison with Japan is um, well. There, okay. Both Japan and Finland faced attacks or threatened attacks. Japan was threatened with attack by the West. The t- attack did not take place. Japan had enough breathing space that was able to arm. Finland did have an attack. Finland did not have a breathing space. the The other parallel is between. Japan and Germany in their their treatment after the Second World War of the countries on which they had perpetrated horrors. Germany being pitiless about making sure that all German schoolchildren go to German concentration camps where they're absolutely pitiless displays by Germans of what Germans did to other people. Um, in Japan, I have Japanese relatives by marriage, and my Japanese relatives tell me that Japanese schools... There's very little about World War II on the grounds that in the 2,000 years of Japanese history, World War II is just five years, so why do we have to spend much time on World War II?
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster.
4: Okay. And how much of that comes down to national character, those differences, do
3: you think? My guess is it must. Um, it, it, there must be differences between national character of Germans and national characters of Japanese that makes it, make it possible for for Germans to acknowledge guilt and to apologize and that make it difficult or impossible for Japanese to acknowledge guilt and apologize. This is something shared between japan and yeah. indonesia as well in in east asia and southeast asia generally uh, there is not the openness about feelings that that there is in the west and, and in in my work in indonesia it's my experience that indonesians don't say no if i ask them something and then they don't want to do it they won't say no we won't do it they'll say yeah no, we'll do it and then they do, then they don't do it mm-hmm. so it's a difference partly a difference between germany and japan between the west and east asia in openness
4: Mm. one thing one of the comparisons i found really interesting in the book is that between national identity and kind of ego strength which is kind of self-identity or self-esteem is that right do you think that is a useful way of understanding how countries build national identity
3: National national identity, I I regard ego strength as a metaphor for national identity. It's not that I use ego strength to understand national identity. In these parallels between personal crises and national crises, some things map directly, such as getting help. You get help from friends, you get help from nations. Or models, you use a person as a model, you use a nation as a model. In other cases, the, the... what we're dealing with is a metaphor rather than an extension. It's not that I see ego strength as translating into national identity, but that ego strength suggests a national quality, analogous to a, a national analog of of ego strength, national identity.
4: Um, another area of the book I thought was great was about Finland, because my knowledge of Finnish history is pitifully small, <laughs> and um, it was really interesting to learn about the ways in which. Finnish national identity really shaped what they experienced with the Soviet Union. Could you talk us through what happened there and how you see those events in these terms?
3: Finnish, Finnish national identity is, is strong for a number of reasons. The Finnish language is a difficult language, distantly related to Hungarian, but so, so distantly that there's no mutual comprehension. So the Finns know that nobody else understands Finnish and nobody learns Finnish. They know that they are different. Uh, they know that they've got this distinctive history. Um, they know that they they've had these great runners, Pavo Nurmi, the flying Finn. They know that they have this great composer, Sibelius. They know know that they have this or this oral epic, the Kalevala, which plays a bigger role for Finns than Shakespeare does for for English speakers. So Finns have a very strong national identity. Uh, it was one of the things that that helped Finns when Russia attacked Finland pull together in particular to get past the the what would have been the consequences of the Finnish Civil War Finland had a civil war in 1918 nobody knows about outside Finland um, but it turns out that the percent of the population killed per week in the Finnish Civil War was higher than that in any modern war until Rwanda, which was pretty horrible. Nevertheless, after the Finnish Civil War, within six years, Finland elected prime minister was on the losing side of the Civil War, despite the fact that most of the people killed in the Civil War were killed killed in concentration camps after the end of the war. looked like a formula for absolute hatred, but all Finns, even whether they were on the losing side or winning side, they all spoke Finnish and they all could recite the Kalevala, and that helped that national identity, helped Finns pull together after the Civil War, and it it helped them unanimously resist the Russian attack.
4: And it helped them deal with failure because it wasn't a resistance that uh, proved successful early on, was it?
3: It was. So during during the Winter War, um, in a sense, Finland lost the Winter War. In another sense, they won the Winter War. They preserved their independence. Um, Yes, they lost Karelia, but most important was that they didn't get occupied and they preserved their independence. And they were they were the only country in Europe to be attacked by a major power, by Germany or Russia, to preserve their independence and not to be not to be be occupied. And in that sense, they well, they won. They won, but at what a horrible horrible cost, with such a large fraction of the population killed or orphaned or, or widowed. But they won, they preserved the independence, and they, they fought twice and they preserved their independence again. Mm.
4: And in the book, you compare that as an external shock, which led to the crisis, um, which is similar to the story of Japan, which we have touched on. What was the external shock that uh, that country experienced?
3: In Japan, the eternal sh- the external shock was the threat of an attack, in the case of Finland, the attack materialized. In the case of Japan, the threatened attack was that an American fleet under Commodore Perry, with steamships and modern guns that the Japanese didn't have, sailed into Tokyo Bay, demanded a treaty. The threat, would, and then then Perry said, "I'll be back next year, and I want a treaty then." The Japanese, rec- and Perry came back the next year with much bigger fleet. the Japanese recognized that if they did not agree, they would be attacked. And the Japanese had seen that, that 11 years before Perry, China, in fact, had been attacked by the West and had lost war. So there was that model for the Japanese of what would happen if they did not succeed in buying off the West. Fortunately for Japan, China had had a lot of what the West wanted, and Japan did not have so much. So that the West did not bother to occupy Japan, and Japan was given the breathing space to acquire Western weapons and to reform its institutions sufficiently fast that Japan eventually initiated its own attack against Russia and then against Germany. So it was a self-conscious act
4: of changing itself in the face of external threat?
3: Absolutely. That's exactly it. It was a self-conscious act of changing the face of an external threat. There was discussion in Japan what to do. Um, An initial reaction was, let's resist the, the West. It was quickly realized as a result of two cases in which Japanese fanatics did shell Western ships and the Western ships then landed and killed thousands of Japanese and took away all their guns. Um, the Japanese, even the fanatics, realized that they could not resist the West and the Japanese then recognized consciously what we have to do is build up our strength as quickly as possible, which means not just military strength, but are also acquiring the Western institutions that give the West strength. Mm-hmm. And Japan was, did have the breathing room, was able to build up strength over the course of several decades. And the Japanese were very careful in their military expansion to wait. They did it in the stages. First they annexed Hokkaido, nobody cared. They annexed Okinawa. nobody cared. They attacked Taiwan, the Chinese cared, but the Japanese didn't, didn't annex Taiwan. Then they attacked China, great surprise, they defeated China. But they learned from their attack on China, they were not permitted to annex the liao Peninsula. They realized that we need Western allies. And so Japan made a naval alliance with Britain. And with that giving them backing, Japan then felt safe in attacking Russia. And having attacked Russia, it then waited until World War I, when Germany was tied up, to attack the German colonies. And unfortunately, from, from the successful war against Russia, Japan, the J- Japanese young leaders between the two wars learned the, the wrong lesson, which is you, we, can, we defeated a Western power, then we'll do it again. And Japan then made the mistake of attacking simultaneously. Simultaneously, Britain, the Netherlands, Australia, the United States, and China with Russia ready to attack. That didn't work.
4: One thing I was interested in, um, both in terms of Japan and the next country we'll talk about, which is Australia, is this idea of a mosaic of identities and how a nation decides which parts of its identity to keep and which parts to change or get rid of. Um, How does that help us understand what happened with Australia?
3: Well, let's preface Australia uh, by, by at least alluding to, to Britain, because Britain is struggling now with an issue of national identity. Basically, is Britain part of Europe, albeit a distinctive part, or is Britain separate from Europe? An outsider like myself would say, well, you went through this in the 1950s and 1960s. You watched what was happening to your trade, Um, you watched what was happening to your empire and fleet, and you recognized that Britain was part of Europe, albeit a distinctive part of Europe. You're now reliving that issue, but... Here again, we get the analogs of personal crises because a couple that has resolved a marital crisis, that doesn't automatically mean that they will live happily forever after. The same issue may recur, and the same issue is recurring in Britain. In the case of Australia, just as Britain has been struggling with the issue of who are we, Australia, during the time that I've been visiting Australia, which began in 1964. Australia has been struggling with an issue of national identity. When I arrived in Australia, Australians viewed themselves as an outpost of Britain, loyal British subjects who happened to be near Asia. But by God, we were loyal British subjects and we died for the British motherland at Gallipoli. But during World War II, there were shocks when when Britain did not succeed in Defending Australia. And two other things changed. Australia wanted immigrants. There weren't enough British who wanted to immigrate. Australia began taking in then people from the Baltic republics and Italians and Greeks who did not share loyalty to the Queen and were receptive or tolerant of Asian immigrants, which the first British settlers were not. Um, And and in addition, Australia's trade patterns change, just as had Britain's trade patterns changed. Um, initially, Australia's trade was overwhelmingly with Britain, but it's not was not so much the case that Australia threw Britain out, but that Britain threw Australia out. Britain recognized changing trade patterns, and Britain realized that it had to join the EU, and that meant erecting trade barriers against Australia, which for Australia felt like a real betrayal. So Australians from the 60s onwards weaned themselves of their British identity in 1979, around 1979 under Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. The white Australia policy was explicitly given up. And when I, in 2008, took my son to the University of Queensland campus, and walked across the UQ campus with him. I felt that I was at University of California, Berkeley or UCLA. Namely, here I was on an Asian majority campus in 1964. This would have been unthinkable. But that's how much Australia would change. And that's such a short period of time. That was 44 years. Yes,
4: Australia is interesting. I think because there was a sort of a, a long period of time where these changes almost built up and then there was a huge result over quite a short space of time. So I'm thinking of the fact that in 1972, you talked about uh, Gough Whitlam, is that right? Go- Gough. Whit. Gough, Gough Whitlam. Yes, yeah. And he said that it was a response to what had already happened. Yeah. So in a sense, what he was doing was making what seemed like a really sudden change based on a buildup of many decades. Yeah. Um, are there any other examples that you can think of where that similar thing has happened?
3: That's a very interesting question. Um, one one could say that Britain's decision to enter the EU was an acknowledgement of what had happened. It's not that it's not that Macmillan's government saw that Britain's trade patterns were changing. Macmillan saw that Britain's tra- trade patterns had already changed, and therefore. That it was time for Britain to acknowledge Britain had already lost the empire. It was not that it was in the process of losing the empire. So one can say that Britain's decision to apply to enter the EU was, as in the case of Gough Whitlam, an acknowledgement of things that already already had happened. In the case of Britain, one can say that there was there was more still pending. Then, in the case of Australia.
4: Another part of your book I thought was really interesting was about the way in which you regard America's current position in the world. Um, how has writing this book helped you understand what challenges America currently faces?
3: Writing the book, first of all, made me, made me review systematically what I regard, regard as the fundamental problems of the United States. The US has lots of problems including problems that I don't discuss in the book. I don't discuss, obviously, the problem of race relations. I don't discuss the role of women. Those are problems for the US, but I don't see those as problems that will will tear the US apart and destroy our economy. I had to think about what are the problems with the potential for destroying our economy, and I ended up with a list of four. The other thing that writing my chapters on the United States made me do was to ask, why political polarization in the United States today, and why political polarization in the United States more than in other countries? I can't prove what my answer is. It seemed to me that the political polarization in the US is part of a general social polarization in the academic sphere and other spheres. And when I ask what could have caused that, my guess is that it's by comparison with New Guinea, the other part of the world that I know best, that it's the decline of face-to-face communication in the US. Uh, It's easy to be abusive and swear at someone who consists of words on a screen uh, it would be difficult for me to look you in the face and start swearing at you. But if you are words on my screen, yes, it would be easy for me to swear at you. So uh, I I see a, possibly a, a cause for the polarization in the United States as being an outgrowth of the decline of face-to-face communication. But that then raises the question, why in the United States and why not? And if, I mean, Italians... And Japanese use cell phones more than Americans do. I think there are a couple of reasons. One, that the distances in the United States are much greater. In Italy, when you move, Italians don't move that much. And when they move, you're still within a day's journey of anywhere else in Italy. Whereas in the United States, you move and it's likely to be coast to coast. And it's a five-day train journey, although it's a, it's a half-day plane flight. And the other thing is that the U.S., just had less social capital to begin with. The U.S. has been historically much more into independence and self-reliance. Friendships have counted for less in the United States than they have in Britain and in Italy and Germany. So it seems to me that, that the greater distances in the U.S., And our lower social capital, plus the fact that these technologies, these non-face-to-face tech, they began in the U.S. The internet was invented. Cell Cell phones took on in the US so that it, it began earlier with us and there was less resistance. That's why I think that there's more political polarization, but British and Australian friends tell me that there's also political polarization in Britain and in Australia, although not as extreme as in the US. And a decreasing amount of
4: social compromise, which I think is something that you can see in Britain in some respects. Um, what do you think has caused that? Is that from the same sort of source, the same route? Social compromise? but by- in- terms of, I mean, you write in the book about people not waiting to get out of lifts until other people have got out of lifts, or people being more socially, um, being less socially willing to compromise and less politically willing to compromise.
3: That I'm familiar with in the United States. Um, I'm, I don't have the first-hand familiarity with that in Britain, although British and Australian friends tell me that, but in the United States, uh, it's not just the case that politicians are unwilling to compromise. Here's a, a banal thing, getting into elevators. It used to, when I was growing up, uh, uh, let the people out of the elevator first before you get into the elevator. And today, people are more likely to push into the elevator. Being in academic life, and having been in U.S. academic life since the mid-1950s, I know firsthand that there's much more nastiness In American academic life now than there was decades ago. Decades ago when I had academic arguments, I would still take vacations. I I would argue with someone about water transport and then we got a rental car together and we went off to see British cathedrals. Today, that would be people that disagree with with guns, germs and steel. There's no way that I'm going to go on a vacation with them. Someone ended a book review of yours by saying, shut up, is that right? That's right.
4: That's outrageous. I can't believe someone would write that. Yeah, that,
3: that was a mild book. It was another book review of whose title was capital F blank blank K U comma Jared Diamond. That was the title of the review in an academic journal. That is outrageous, honestly. You will not get that BBC History Magazine.
4: Anyway, um, another thing I, I think was interesting... Um, how do you think studying these national stories can help us prepare for potential global crises
3: the the outcome variables one can apply the same outcome variables and when you apply them at first you're inclined to be pessimistic because the world does not have a shared identity the world there isn't any other nebula from which the world is going to get help. We can't look to the inhabitants of Mars for a model of how to resolve our global problems. Um, the world does not have shared values. That might make one pessimistic. But the reality is that the world, the world does have a track record of solving global problems of solving difficult global problems. The world has had a track record recently of eliminating smallpox, of protecting the ozone layer, of requiring double-hull tankers on the seas, of something really difficult, reaching agreement about shallow water economic zones, got all the conflict there and they reached agreement, Of reaching agreement about the division of the seabed for, for mining so that the world does have a track record that can give the world I mean, we did it with smallpox So let's do it now with polio. That's a direct track. We did it with smallpox. We did it with Rinderpest Let's do it now with guinea worm and river blinders. That's a direct model
4: And that would also apply to some of the really big sort of scary things that people think about like climate change or um, the rise of, uh, kind of uh, increased poverty
3: yeah. In the case of climate change, all right. We've already dealt once with gases in the atmosphere. The gases were CFCs. And we've reached an agreement to get the CFCs out of the atmosphere in order to protect the ozone layer. Since we've done it with one gas, let's do it with two more gases, CO2 and methane. Um, one of the factors we've not
4: really talked about, which I find interesting in terms of this, is patience. Um, are there nations that you think have exhibited particularly admirable levels of patience or nations that perhaps still lack an ability to be patient?
3: Yeah, c- counterexamples. Germany patient, the United States impatient, Germans after 1945, they wait until 1990 for reunification. They didn't give up hope of reunification. There was nothing that Germany could do directly to get unified. If West Germany had said, we're going to unify with East Germany, in would come the Russian troops. The Germans had to wait for the right moment. But they had laid laid the groundwork in 1970 when Willy Brandt recognized East Germany, recognized Russia, established diplomatic relations, and acknowledged the permanent loss of the German territories beyond the Oder-Neisse line. So Germans waited 45 years. Um, The United States has shown less pain. We've had much more difficulty getting through the trauma of the Vietnam War. Basically, we lost the Vietnam War. Um, Germany lost World War II. Germany has reached more peace with having lost World War II than the United States has with having lost the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War. Why do you think that is? The United States is is used to success. Germany is not used to success. Germany is in the middle of Europe. Germany has been repeatedly overrun. The Germans, the two occasions when Germany tried to impose its will on Europe, the result was utterly disastrous. The Germans don't don't expect to succeed easily. The United States has been accustomed to success. And the, the first war, we've had two wars where we didn't succeed. The Korean War ended in something of a stalemate. At least we preserved the freedom of South Korea. And the Vietnam War, basically, we lost. But it was the first war that we lost and was traumatic. a shock.
4: Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems to me that part of the reason you're optimistic, despite all these crises, is that you think that the more world history that we have to learn from, the better will be at coping with the next set of disasters. Is, is that a fair way of putting it? That's one
3: part of it. It's one, one reason that gives me optimism. Um, today, more people read than ever in the past. When Thucydides wrote Peloponnesian War around 400 BC, how many copies of Peloponnesian, how many manuscripts were out there? A few dozen, a few hundred. Whereas today, you publish a book and it's out there in millions of copies all over the world. So there's much more opportunity to learn today than there was was in the past. That's one reason for optimism. Other reasons for optimism are that big businesses, which are potent forces, both for good and bad, within the last decade or two, quite a few big businesses have started to do more good things and fewer bad things, although the general public is not so widely aware of them. Um, that gives me cause cause for hope and the fact is that we've not had a major war since since 1945 um that's some grounds for for optimism
4: uh, is there more work that you would like to do on this subject is there more areas of research that you didn't get to put in this book that you'd like to expand on in the future
3: yes and yes and no yes there are things that I would like to expand on but there there are there are other there are completely different questions, and I think I, I will move on to other questions. And th- there are there many, thi- many things left unresolved by this book. Um, my selection of countries is obviously non-random. They were the countries that Jared Diamond happened to have lived in and spoke the language. But in there, there's not a single African country. It's a skewed sample. And most of the countries are first world democracies. The non-first world democracies in there are Chile, which is halfway, and Indonesia, which is not a first world democracy. But does this apply to Africa? Does this apply to non-first world democracies? Um, what about countries that have conspicuously failed to confront crises? All of that remains to be done but my history, my own personal history, for the last thirty years has been that when I publish a book, um, I've gone on not to write another book which fixes up the previous book, but instead to look at something completely different. There's so much.
4: There's so much you could write about. This is the thing.
3: Um, you
4: mentioned there are countries that have conspicuously failed to engage with crises. What examples can you think of
3: of, of those, perhaps? Somalia, where government has collapsed. Afghanistan, where government has virtually collapsed. Um, it appears to me that Pakistan is suffering from severe problems. Within Latin America, El Salvador has chronically been la- locked in in strife. That's a good. There are plenty of plenty of African countries, and there are other Latin American countries that have been been locked in problems and have not. Papua New Guinea, where I do my field work, um, Papua New Guinea is dealing with problems that remain unresolved. So, yeah, there are plenty of examples of just as there are people that don't resolve their difficulties, there are countries that don't resolve their
4: difficulties. Do you think that a country can genuinely change without a crisis? Or do you think crises remain the best way of a nation
3: developing? With countries as with people, crises attract attention um, there's that the quote of Samuel Johnson, um, quoted by Boswell, something like, Believe me, sir, when a man knows that he is going to be hanged in two weeks, it wonderfully focuses his attention. Yes, a crisis, and similarly with, with deteriorating marriages. Um, when one person says, I'm walking out and I'm getting a divorce, that attracts attention more than complaints about the marriage for a decade. Uh, So with countries as well, um, recognition of a crisis, or recognition often depends upon there being a crisis. But there are cases of countries um, um, acting proactively to avoid a crisis. And the prime example is the European Union. The EU in 1950, Adenauer and the other uh, European, they didn't wait for World War III. They said, we need something to prevent of World War III, that was taking action in advance of a crisis, and the government of Finland. There's a branch of the Finnish government, which is called Crisis Planning Branch. They meet every month. A friend of mine is on the on the panel, and every month they meet and they figure, they ask, what might go wrong in Finland? When I the last time I visited Finland, my friend happened to say who come back from the counter. In the most recent panel, we Finns discussed what happens if our electronic grid, electric grid, gets knocked out, for example, by a cyber attack. What would Finland do in the case of the electric grid being knocked out? Okay, Finland's electric grid has not been knocked out, but Finland hasn't waited for the electric grid to get knocked out. They have planned what they would do if it were knocked out. So yes, there are cases where countries take action in advance of a crisis, but the fact remains that with countries as with people, nothing attracts attention like something massively going wrong. That
2: was Jared Diamond. Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you can read a version of this interview in our June edition, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, you'll find a special supplement on D-Day for the 75th anniversary Plus articles on Catherine of Aragon, the history of atheism and Queen Victoria's childhood. Look out for it in all good retailers and our digital formats now. And just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for our 2019 History Weekends are now on sale. This year we have events at Chester from the 25th to 27th of October and then Winchester from the 1st to 3rd of November. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for the full lineups and to purchase tickets. And that's about all for today. But we will be back on Monday to speak to Angela Stidella about a pioneering lesbian.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, The Library.